The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! so cold in this podcast oh. Oh. Paul I have oh. no idea what you're talking about I am oh. here in warm sunny Florida <laughs> welcome on back to the third man podcast I'm your co-host James Kaminsky and I'm your co-host Paul frozen this is awful Paul I just want you to know I'm on vacation this week. James is on vacation. I'm, I'm, I'm escaping the cold, cold northeast where I uh, normally set up shop and normally cast from into the wow. sunny depths of Florida. Wow. Well, James, it's very nice to... Island James is here. That <laughs> echoed crazy. That was like putting reverb on it, man. That was nuts. Well, James... I am here in frigid Southern California. Welcome back from both of us to all of you to the Third Men podcast. We are a Jack White history podcast that goes over Jack White music and history, and in this case, a little bit more. Jack White isn't something that can be bought from a store. Jack White, it seems, is a little bit more. What? (laughs) Guys, remember Grinch? Well, let me lift my well, <laughs> sunshades up and step out of the sand uh, into this echo chamber that I've found myself inside <laughs> of. Do you know why I escaped from that cold, cold mountainous northeast to, to come why? on down here to Florida? Why did you escape from that cold on down to Florida or whatever you said? So that I can more, so that I can more comfortably talk about our topic for today. Oh, hey, what's our topic for today? Our topic is Cold Mountain today. Cold Mountain, the film starring Re- Renee Zellweger, Nicole Kidman. We got Mr. Jude Law in yeah. there, and we got Donald Sutherland. But most importantly, James. Uh, a seven Academy Award-nominated movie, as well as a masterpiece. A spectacular, says Rex Reed of the New York Observer. Yes, but James, the key thing we're not, we're dancing around here for Stunning, some stupid reason. Stunning, says Newsweek. Yeah, is, uh, this film features Mr. Jack White in his, his first major film role, certainly major one. His first who, Dolby Digital 5.1 surround sound role, says the back of this DVD case. Yeah, and so we're going to get and talk a little bit about that. And, you know, this is really the first in a series of episodes that we'll be talking about Jack's movie dealings. But uh, for now, James, I I think we have something to stop doing. We're here 
to school you on some Jack White history. And if we get anything wrong, feel free to school us. That'll bring us to a segment that uh, we like to call... James, what were we wrong about this week? Our stop breaking down comes from Mr. Jeremy Riles. Thank you, Jeremy. You are the wind beneath our wings. (laughs) Jeremy Riles, keeping us on the rails. Jeremy pointed out that in episode 13, we were discussing the Paramount box set. Uh, Yes, our New Year's episode where we recapped 2016 and went through all the different releases that year. Yes. That's right. And we had mistakenly said that Robert Johnson was involved in that. As it turns out, Mr. Robert Johnson is nowhere to be found on the Paramount box set. In fact, I made that mistake, so I'm very sorry, everyone. The reason I got it confused is because Robert Johnson in that same year was called out by Jack when he gave a speech at the American Epic premiere at the 2016 Sundance Film Festival. And I I think Robert Johnson was simply top of mind as I was going through that, but obviously he was not on that and we were wrong and we're very, very sorry about it. Put your Johnson back, Paul. We're not taking him out for that Paramount box set. Oh, God. <laughs> and then I'll do it for ours. <laughs> All right, so Cold Mountain, James, this movie, uh, we're going we're gonna to break this into a couple different segments, you know? We'll talk about the film, we'll talk about the soundtrack. We're going to go into your history about the movie. We're going to go into your history about the music. We, we were mentioning earlier, really, we're talking about this because Jack White was so heavily involved in this thing, and uh, it's really only one of a few acting roles he's had, but the ones he's had are just crazy. And and this one fit him very perfectly. I think we should take it into the first topic for this podcast, which is the film Cold Mountain. Cold, cold Mountain. Um so just just to lay the foundation here, James. Uh one of the one of the biggest things I noticed about this movie is that, and one of the things that I'm sure attracted Jack White to it, was the role that music plays in the film. Because music is a an aspect, the music in the film is always played or sang by somebody. It's really an aspect of the plot and actually kind of signifies all the major both plot and character points of the film. But, but we'll get into all that as we start to go through the film, but we'll, we'll say them as they go along. By the way, if you, any of you haven't seen this and you're trying to avoid spoilers, f- fast forward through this section because we're going to talk a little bit about spoilers here. But James literally just walked away. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to avoid spoilers, Paul. Let's get into Cold Mountain, shall we? Let's get. Let's in, do it. Let's get into the movie. All right. So I'm sure you're all familiar with the movie Cold Mountain, the sleeper hit of 2003. Hold on. Let me just put on my uh, Siskel hat. James, and you can put on your Ebert galoshes. This movie was based off of a 1997 book by Charles <laughs> Frazier. It was, very, it was a hit really? book, popular book. I did not know that. Yeah. Soon after, Anthony Minghella directed a 2003 film starring one Jude Law, Nicole Kidman, Renee Zellweger, and a Mr. Jack White. 
I mean, there's a few others in there, James. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Of course. We have Natalie Portman. A young Portman. Yes, uh, just hot off the heels of Attack of the Clones, I want to say. so. Paul, there's, if there's one thing she hates, it's sand. And so she got away from that to get to the cold mountain. I don't like sand. I mean, she's like, we could just sort of believe her as an adult at this point. What, what year was Attack of the Clones? Like 2002? Uh, yeah, so this is the yeah. year before. Right. All right. Anyway, yeah, she she plays a widower in this. It's a lovely scene. Also, it's got that kid from the Wonder Years. The Stewie. One... Yeah, it's Stewie. <laughs> Stewie from the Wonder Years. Dewey, Huey, and or Louie. Was his name Dewey? Dewey was from Malcolm in the Middle, Paul. All right. I'm sorry. This is crazy tangent. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, Jack White. It's his acting debut, kind of. Yeah, it's his... like at least on a large scale. On a large scale credited with lines. And so this this is kind of our first Jack on film episode you know his his first roles uh he was in the the rosary murders way way back when he was a kid by the way i was looking at the cast and crew of, uh, on imdb here and i saw kathy baker and read it as kenny baker and i was like who did r2d2 play in this movie <laughs> uh, so a star-studded cast is what we're getting at right, here. a star-studded right. cast right many stars none of which are kenny baker <laughs> in- <laughs> Nicole Kidman plays Ada. She's the star. Southern Belle, she's a minister's daughter. She's awaiting the return of her, I'll say love, for lack of a better term. She's deeply lovelorn for Mr. Inman, uh, who is a Confederate soldier who signs up at the beginning of the war. He's played by Mr. Jude Law. Inman is, a, like I said, a Confederate soldier. He actually deserts the army after being shot in the neck he's trying to prevent a raid by union soldiers yeah it's sort of a skirmish at night in the woods and yeah he had survived all this stuff and then uh suddenly there's this surprise battle no one was really prepared for and boom he gets wounded and he wants desperately to get back to his love ada who lives on cold mountain correct they're both from the town of cold mountain north carolina i guess you could say he's looking for a home he's looking for a home so he's a Confederate soldier, but hes you could tell he's doing it more out of a sense of duty to his town and, and, and his state, not to condone the actions of the Confederacy. But, you know, he was... He's one of those that's sort of going borderline there. He's, you could tell, like, by his acting, he's not, like, really into it. But he's surrounded by a lot of crazies who are. When it looks like the war has taken a turn and the Confederacy is imploding around him, that's when he deserts and starts this long trek back home, which is really the brunt of the movie, which is him going back home and Nicole Kidman trying to, like, survive... She's this sort of prissy character that doesn't have the skills to survive. And so it's all about a journey of survival on both ends. Right. That's basically the general overview of what the story is. It's um, a Homeric Odyssey story where Jude Law plays an Odysseus character and Nicole Kidman plays a Penelope character. There's like Homeric Odyssey is a good way to put it. There's a lot of classical love story style uh, approach to to the plot. Basically, you you could tell that in the beginning of the war that he's surrounded by way too gung-ho people and he doesn't care. You know, they set the scene in a church uh, and the war breaks out and people get the news and the really gung-ho people leave the church and start celebrating right outside. And then Inman is in there still praying. He's with his the minister who is the father of Ada. They're mostly praying not for war, but for better future. Ada's father, played by the always evil-looking Donald Sutherland. Yeah, um, I, I noticed that, too, and 
you know, he's he's quite a, he's quite a like a warm presence in the film. But man, he looks like he should be a villain. The the, the movie starts off with uh, the Battle of the Crater, which is a, a battle in the Civil War during the siege of Petersburg, Virginia, towards the end of the war. Uh, the battle was actually it's based on a real one, and apparently is very historically accurate. July 30th, 1864, the Union troops dug a mine underneath the Confederates and uh, planted so many explosives and just lit it up. And all of the Confederates were blown out of their trenches um, as they were trenched around Petersburg. And then uh, the Union troops rushed in and into the crater that they had just created to finish off the Confederacy. But once the Confederates had gotten their wits about them, they were able to surround the Union troops and basically fire into the crater, uh, as one calls it, a turkey shoot. Terrible yeah. loss of life yeah. and not good for goose. It's uh, so. <laughs> terrifying. Yeah, really yeah. horrific battle. So you really can't blame Jude Law for being, like, disenfranchised by the mission. I mean, he was just, had all his friends blowed up. He's seen some stuff. Not a very fun time. He had a little kid, little friend of his got a bayonet through the belly. It's been a hard time, man. And the fiddle player, well, I guess we won't spoil that until we finish our plot overview whenever that happens. Doesn't look like it'll be soon. We're flashing back and forth between Inman and Ada falling in love and the aftermath of this battle of the crater. Ada coming to town as a minister's daughter and, and meeting Inman, who is a, a woodworker. They fall in love within a matter of, you know, a couple weeks, maybe. And we're basically seeing the reason why he wants to get back to her so desperately and the reason why she wants him to come back so desperately. War is announced. Inman goes off to war and Ada is left there to fend for herself with her father. Yeah. But in the waning days of the war, Ada's father actually dies. He was ill with some kind of critical ailment and ada becomes alone for the first time in her life gets attacked by a rooster at one point it's fun she doesn't know where inman is she hasn't received any post from him and inman is able to get a letter from her and uh, it's her saying come back to me come back to me come back to me is my request and so he's desperately trying to get back to her, and he deserts the Confederacy to do so. Meanwhile, Confederates who are losing men left and right and losing the war are trying to hold everything together, and troops who are shooting deserters on sight, as well as Inman is dodging Union troops. You know, eventually Ada meets up with Ruby Thews, who is played by Renee Zellweger, uh, who is a young mountain girl who helps Ada become self-reliant. Uh, Ruby is married to Jack White, another deserter who is trying to escape his equally atrocious past. He's a minstrel. Um, he plays in a band with the Renee Zellweger character's father and also the, the guy who looks at the schooner from Mallrats for some weird reason. You gotta relax your eyes. Everyone sees this thing except me. <laughs> they're all like... They're all like a band... In yeah. the Civil War time. Would you guys shut up? You're breaking my concentration. Sorry, Willem. And of, and like, okay, if Jack was going to be reincarnated from anything, it was, it's definitely that. Yeah, he, he plays a deserter turned minstrel named Georgia. And, it, and by the way, it takes an hour and 40 minutes to get to him in the freaking film. Yeah. And when we first see him, he's playing... Christmas time will soon be over, right? He's doing yeah that one with the band and Nicole Kidman's dancing around, having fun, you know? He's 
playing a bunch of traditional tunes that he has. I think he plays Wayfaring Stranger right after that. Yeah. He's definitely acting. He has a lot of lines in it. He has a a lot of songs that he's also playing. Yeah. Wayfaring Stranger is a really cool song. It's the closest I think it comes to like a a full song from him on this thing. But also there's like other bands have covered that, like Neko Case covered Wayfaring Stranger and We'll we'll get to that. Got it, got it, got it. The majority of the movie was was actually filmed in Romania in the Carpathian Mountains. Ah, Vigo, the scourge of Carpathia. Of Transylvania. Really? Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Even though the movie is set in the American South, some of some of the movie was filmed in North Carolina, some of it was filmed in Virginia, but most of it was filmed in, in hmm. Romania. On a mountain of skulls in the castle of pain. In the mountains. And the reason they did that was actually because the American South, uh, you, you can see the industrial revolutions scarring as they call it yeah the land is too modern to portray a civil war story so they chose romania because it's basically untouched oh that's really interesting because i remember thinking to myself while i was watching it like wow it's nice to know we still have some some beautiful landscapes left in this country nope yeah (laughs) no we do not i mean that that's (laughs) that's still true but the country i'm talking about of course is romania (laughs) Mingala says, uh, if you go in the air and look down on America, it's got all of the tattoos of the 21st century, the way that big farm equipment leaves their scars. But in Transylvania, there are miles of completely virgin landscape. Jude Law said it was blissful. He said, in the little town where I lived, I was the only person who had a car. Everyone else had a horse and cart. And Renee Zellweger had added, it was fantastic. It gives you a lot of time to think about what it is that you really need. More importantly, it makes you realize what you don't need. Interesting. Yeah. It's a very jackish thing to say from Zellweger there, you know? A lot of things in this movie tend to lean towards Jack's sensibilities. So, uh, like I said, Jack plays a troubadour named Georgia. The idea to cast him as a nameless boy from Georgia came with T-Bone Burnett's instant approval. T-Bone Burnett was in charge of the music for this movie. He had done also the music for Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And was tasked with doing the music for this. Uh, But Ah. we'll get into that in a minute. Burnett had said of all the young singers out there, he has done the most homework. It's not easy to do those songs to make them new. You have to really metabolize them somehow. They have to mean something to you. Like all storytelling, you have to believe them, believe in what you're singing. So again, very, very Jack White. In an interview with Elsewhere... Uh, dot com or elsewhere.co.nz, which I guess is a New Zealand <laughs> tablature. No idea. Here's some quotes Jack White reflecting on his acting. I got to do so many things I hadn't done, and it was great to learn. Yeah, I'm all right. I'm mostly singing in the film, so I wasn't an acting role that much. You can look at it and take it for what it is, but my character was a musician, so it wasn't a stretch. I was there for six weeks with a lot of downtime, freezing in the winter, and it was worth every minute of it. I had a lot of lines. <laughs> He was there for six weeks in the mountains of Romania, which is kind of awesome. <laughs> Just chilling out. Um, <laughs> well, uh, the Stripes, it's funny. The Stripes were touring uh, in the in that eastern block in that time frame, too. Different tour. This The movie oh, came... Oh, that's the, right. That's right. Yeah. This movie was being filmed in 2002, so they hadn't even done Elephant yet. Wow. You're right. They were just fresh off of doing White Blood Cells. Wow. So no inroads there yet. Yeah, no, none none yet. Yeah, uh, Jack White had also said on the effort of filmmaking, I don't consider it a waste of time. I do consider it precious time, though. If you have to have the idea like Mingala had 
and you've written a screenplay and got people to invest. And then the years he put in, it's so much time. It's a two-piece band, and I produce all the albums in regards to the White Stripes. It's very easy to get my ideas across, but how do you get your idea across to all those people who are working on lighting and sound and the actors themselves? It's such a task to get those people to work towards your one goal, which you have to make become everybody's one goal. He he seems to have gotten a, a really good appreciation of film from this movie. Yeah. He was very against becoming, you know, a yeah. famous movie star. <laughs> yeah, so he started dating one. Well, right. There's a quote from Jack about acting. I don't remember it verbatim, but it always stuck with me uh, when he was discussing acting and he was saying, like, you have to move in big, grand gestures that don't feel natural when you're doing them, but you have to do it so that the camera will catch all of it. Acting in subtlety only really works on a really micro scale. And it always kind of stuck with me as an interesting idea of like, wow, yeah, you know, you kind of do have to overact by nature of the thing, even though it seems counterintuitive, you know? Yeah, yeah. He definitely learned a lot about acting from this movie. Uh, and it's his acting's not bad at all. But uh, yeah, in regards to the fame thing, and this is coming from The White Stripes by Alex Hannaford. Me being in Cold Mountain was because of how much I loved American and Southern American folk music. Jack reflected afterwards, it wasn't a step in the direction of fame. Jack detested the fame game and despised celebrity. For him, that concept was empty and meaningless. But he did like how he was able to reach out to so many people through that kind of medium. Yeah, I mean, that that sounds consistent with his behavior. You know, he doesn't like celebrity, but he likes manipulating celebrity to his own ends. You know, as we talked about ad nauseum in the television episode, it makes sense that he would feel the same way about a Hollywood crowd yeah and like i said he was there for six weeks in the freezing cold he said uh, there was a lot of snow constantly snowing there it was constantly freezing cold jack had said in an interview and my character was always in the snow all of my scenes were in the snow and there was a lot of downtime just waiting around for the snow to finally hit a lot of the time he's actually in new york for this interview and he he gestures outside to a blizzard that's going on in manhattan at the time and he says in this out there this ain't no big deal <laughs> actually a few days after this interview meg actually slips and falls and breaks her arm in new york soon after this interview because of the snow oh no but uh yeah this this ties in with the hollywood stuff and the snow stuff uh maybe the circumstances had something to do with it as well but we all got to know each other really well i was totally in the mindset that it would actually be tremendously difficult to deal with the stuck up hollywood egos but actually i became good friends with them all including uh, miss renee zellweger uh they became a little more than friends paul <laughs> Um, uh, of course, Renee Zellweger was fresh off of her steamy love affair with Hollywood superstar Kenny Baker. Yeah, it's not really talked about often, but she was actually the guy in the C-3PO outfit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Human-cyborg relations, and this is my counterpart. It was real weird, and yeah. the timeline doesn't really sync up, but just take our word for it. Yeah, no, not at all. Um, uh, she's actually quite good in this movie. I gotta, I gotta be honest here. She plays like the rough and tumble Ruby, and she teaches Nicole Kidman how to be a farmer and stuff. And I could see how Jack would be taken by not only her ability, but she's just offbeat enough to me to like attract the the Jack. You know? <laughs> yeah, and it was the height of her fame, pretty much. She was just about to star in the you know Bridget Jones Diary. Um, right. It, it's a good time for Renee, and it's a good time for Jack. And she won an Oscar for this, right? Yes. Yes, uh, she did. 
But yeah, they met on the set in Romania, and Jack played her husband in the movie and dated her in real life uh, after this. Yes. Jack White had said, I was on top of a hill a mile away, and Renee Zellweger's down at the bottom herding sheep or something, and she's laughing at me. Look at you, rock star. You're at the top of a hill, and you've got to run down 20 times. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. I mean, this isn't long after the Meg divorce, and he's involved with the bacteria Marcy around this time as well, so he's He's really rebounding pretty hard. Yeah, but this sticks a little better than Marcy Bolin. He dates her for about two years. Wow, really? That was yeah. that long? Which, yeah, it's a good long time. The tabloids had a field day with it, though. They they had told stories of him breaking up with her, her breaking up with him over and over and over again throughout those two years. 2004, they had broke up. Um, yeah, because he married Karen Elson like a year later. In the frickin' Amazon, uh, at the junction of three rivers, like a frickin' madman. (laughs) But soon after, yeah, Jack quickly, uh, got with Karen Elson and married Karen Elson. Yeah, I mean, not that anyone is trying to judge here, it's just... What's the point, Ventura? It, I, I, feel, I feel like for us it's applicable only because it seeps into the music. You hear him exercising his demons a lot. I have exercise the demons in albums particularly you know referring to the album i'm researching currently get behind me satan yeah they never they never really affect his performing ability and they they definitely affect his art in ways that i've been able to relate to so there's that yes yes yeah no i think it's actually a, a, a positive thing for an artist to be going through pain it's a very selfish weird thing for us to be even talking about but anyway yeah but they remained good friends. Uh, there was no real scandal or anything. Um, yeah, they like there was like rumors of them getting back together like in 2015 or something too. Like I'm not sure if it was ever like totally substantiated, but yeah. Yeah, I don't. I, I'm not sure. I, yeah, when the rumors kind of hit the tabloids, I, I tend to just ignore them unless they come from a spokesperson or Jack or something like that. Yeah. But Paul, you you might be wondering what Meg has been up to this whole time. <laughs> Um, Did they leave her on the mountain? <laughs> hey, Jason, Where, did you pack my winter bag? Swing, where's Meg? What are today? And then Meg pops out of the airplane and says, Happy birthday! <laughs> Jim Jarmusch, actually, uh, the director of Coffee and Cigarettes and uh, occasional raconteur, I guess, decided yeah, for whatever weird reason. Yeah, uh, interviewed Meg at one. Uh, interviewed the Stripes at one point and asked, "Wow, Meg, while Jack was gone all that time, what were you up to?" And she responds, "I was mostly being a hermit." And then laughs. She says, "She went out on tour with some friends for a little while." Now, I want to know what she means by tour. Does she mean she was like out touring, like Romania, or was she actually on tour with a band, or was Good she just to know? Yeah, I don't know. Backstage, I there's a lot of questions, and I'd like to know, but I couldn't find any any more information on it. So, guys, email us, thirdmanpodcast.gmail.com. Jim Gunn continues, You see, while Jack was doing that, we should have been making a silent film biography of someone like Pola Negri. And Meg then says yes, and then laughs. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, they, they touch upon it there, but we do know for sure they actually flew Meg White into Romania to play a rap show after Cold Mountain was done filming uh, in Transylvania. 
That's awesome. Is yeah. there any like audio or video from that? I couldn't find any, but I'm sure it exists. If I find any before I'm done editing, I'll put it up here. Okay, fair enough. I, I am looking. But, oh, Paul, sorry, that sounded ahead. either great or terrible. I don't know yet. I thought of... that was pretty cool. James, I can't believe you couldn't find that. James, <laughs> that sounded awful. I'm sorry, and you're welcome. So yeah, they, they flew Meg in and pulled out a complete white stripe set in front of the film's 400 actors, technicians, and staff. Renee was there. Jude Law was there. Nicole Kidman was there. Everybody was there. Wow. They, they played in a hotel just out, outside of Bucharest on Nove- November 23rd, 2002. Jack had said it was a stylish old hotel in Brasov, right outside Bucharest, just before Christmas. And then we stood up there and played Isis and one more cup of coffee with T-Bone Whoa. Burnett himself, who had nice. played with them. Uh, T-Bone had actually played with Dylan uh, on the Rolling Thunder review tour. Um, and Jack had said, this is definitely a high point of the film project for me. What had happened, actually, was during the encore, a Romanian folk dancing group was there, and someone had given them a White Blood Cells record. And so when uh, they came out to do their encore, the Romanian folk dancing group got out with them and did some of the extra songs with them. Whoa. Uh, They practiced their dance routine to Fell in Love with a Girl, and I Think I Smelled a Rat. They performed in full traditional costume. Oh, that's the best thing I ever heard. Yeah. I love that. Jack had said it was it was great. It was surreal, very odd. There was this Romanian dance troupe there, and they rehearsed a couple of numbers to dance with us while we played behind them. So there were these very clumsy Romanian dancers in these 20s flappers outfits in this communist cabaret theater with Nicole Kidman and Jude Law dancing in front of us. It was very <laughs> odd. <laughs> Meg's quoted as saying and I met everybody at that party they were all really nice I always thought movie sets would have lots of these egos flying around but it wasn't like that at all the Stripes played an hour long set when t- qu- talking about the show Jack said uh, he was the children of the night he said in a belly L- Bella Lugosi accent um, <laughs> we were using this pieced together duct taped Romanian equipment but T-Bone Burnett was there and he was on that Bob Dylan Rolling Thunder review tour. So he did two Dylan songs with us, Isis and One More Cup of Coffee. It was really fun. Wow. That's really awesome. Yeah. So that was uh, that was the rap party, and that was that was the film, Paul. Wow. Should it's we, been a long should, road, but yes. we, we, we arrived at Cold Mountain. Yes, we climbed up this cold mountain, uh, <laughs> and I think it's time that we settle into our log cabin in this cold, cold mountain and talk about not only the sights, but the sounds as well. Oh, tell me about the sounds, James. Bop, 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 bop. <laughs> okay, James, tell me about the music in Cold Mountain. I'm dying to know. I love. Let me tell you. Oh, Wayfaring Stranger, very nice song. Uh, I would sing for you. Christmas time would soon be over, but I don't think you want to hear that. So we got. Uh, you know, there's a lot of great tunes on that album. Yes, Paul, there sure are, uh, and you are correct. Please never sing that song again. Uh, you'll remember from. The Christmas episode, episode 12, Old in Mary. which we talk about Christmas time will soon be over. Paul sings a, a whole acapella version. Uh, no more of that. <laughs> no, no more. 
So the soundtrack was compiled and <laughs> created and was tasked to T-Bone Burnett, otherwise known as Joseph Henry Burnett. He's a he's a well-known soundtrack producer. He's a well-known musician and artist. As I had said before, he was a touring guitarist in Bob Dylan's band on the Rolling Thunder Review Tour, and he was a founding member of the Alpha Band, as well as being a solo artist. Veteran Warner Brothers publicist Bill Bentley had said about T-Bone Burnett, T-Bone's not a control freak. He'll never make you do something you don't want to do. He goes after shaping songs and helping a band discover the best side of itself to record. He spends a lot of time listening before stepping in. And that seems to be a lot of what people say about him, is that he really does spend a lot of time researching the music before he really goes into it. He was the one who had created Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack, which was one of the first soundtracks to have some cultural resonance that was mostly American folk music. Uh, It wasn't really in vogue before that. Didn't that that album win like a Grammy too? Yeah. Yeah. It it won a lot of stuff actually. Throughout researching Cold Mountain, it comes up a lot. Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And this one kind of falls into that kind of Americana, Appalachian, rootsy style stuff that is in Jack's wheelhouse, by the way, but also which is kind of in vogue at that time period. I think there was, you know, maybe a little bit of a simpler time kind of longing there. I mean, when isn't there, but particularly in 2003. That's true. I found a quote that really solidified the the whole researching side of T-Bone Burnett. He, He said... I have this feeling that if you concentrate and listen hard enough, you listen it into existence. <laughs> oh, so a guy that falls right into Jack's crowd, for sure. Oh, exactly. <laughs> he was tasked with producing a fresh-sounding album of traditional songs, which sounds like an oxymoron. I feel like he did it. He accomplished it. Yeah. The director was determined to avoid making a middle-aged sounding record, so he used young artists so that they could, quote, breathe new life into traditional songs. Yeah, like uh, Sting and Elvis Costello, you know, young artists. (laughs) Well, (laughs) the the really, the the backbone, if you will, of T-Bone's casting. Oh, man. I mean, go on. That was great. (laughs) Was Jack White. Uh, T-Bone recommended him himself. Jack White has said of T-Bone Burnett, to me, he produces like I do. He takes a situation for what it is. If someone shows up with a Fender guitar instead of a Gibson, he goes with that. An example, Burnett acknowledges, working on these movies taught me a tremendous amount. I learned that a good song doesn't need anything, not even drums or chords or beat. A great song is a great song, uh, which is exactly what Jack's philosophy is, you know. You don't need musical instruments. You could just have a feeling and hum along and you could have a great song, which is grinning in your face. You know, he's just hitting, he's just clapping his hands and singing along. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. And Uh, I mean, you've got people, you've got people who are good at that on this record too, even other than Jack White, like Alison Krauss can kind of pull melody out of the air, even with the most dry material. So, oh, totally. Definitely. And she does a really good job. Uh, there's a song at the end of the credits. Well, she does a couple. She does You Will Be Mayan True Love, which was written by Sting. And then there's The Scarlet Tide that was written by T-Bone Burnett and Elvis Costello. Yeah, Scarlet Tide is so good. You know, Jack had said that he was flattered that he even knew who he was. Uh, you know, and that he knew he had a love for Americana and American folk music. Yeah. 
he said the funniest part was what we were recording white blood cells in memphis long before any mainstream success and listening to oh brother where art thou soundtrack oh which wow t-bone burnett did and i remember saying to meg it would be so- sorry let me do my my jack voice and i remember <laughs> saying to meg it would be so cool if we had gotten famous and this movie had come out a year from now and maybe we could have gotten on that soundtrack somehow and a year <laughs> later it happened it was a lot of work i don't think i could ever be a full-time actor I don't know how these people do it. I don't know how these people do it. But no part of it. <laughs> oh, man. So he felt super honored and, and uh, quite frankly, he felt scared by this whole situation because he was around such great American folk musicians. Right. Also, this guy, Tim Erickson, credited as a, as a musician and scholar, uh, was sort of tasked with the job of teaching the various performers on the soundtrack that weren't, you know, the big name people how to execute the complex style of sacred harp singing. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing. Like, it, it's a tradition of singing sacred choral music that originated in the American South. This is from Wikipedia, so take it for what it's worth. But the name is derived from, derived from Sacred Harp, a ubiquitous and historically important tune book printed in shape notes. It's performed a cappella. Yeah, there's two two of those songs on the actual soundtrack, I believe. Yeah. And uh, the first one is actually the scene in the church where the war is begun. We touched on that a little bit um, earlier in the episode when we talked about how music kind of plays a big role in the film as well, and it sort of signifies the larger... Like, whenever something significant happens in the movie, music accompanies it. When the war breaks out, they're all singing. When the kid dies, that affects the guy's view of the war at the beginning. It's a fiddle player is playing him out. So it's, it's very clear music is an, was an important part of the film, and they wanted to capture these kinds of authentic sounds, including this, you know, sacred harp singing and other stuff. Which yeah. is important to both T-Bone Burnett, it seems, and definitely to Jack White. Yeah, for sure. I mean, authenticity is Jack's goal, I think, always, you know. Most of the recording was done in Nashville, Tennessee, at Sound Emporium Studios, which Jack had found very frightening, as well as being fun. Really? Uh, yeah, he said that there were so many amazing string musicians there, people who built their own instruments. I did not once dare to touch my guitar. I only <laughs> sang. He didn't even want to touch the instruments. He just said, okay, I will sing, humbly sing. Much as I love American folk music, I don't think that alone entitled me to be in that world. That's, um, that's so funny. It, it's got to be one of the first times he's, he was down there, too, because... Yes, it was one of the first times he had been there, which brings me, Paul, we will oh, have some man. rags. Um, well, James, uh, another singer on that album named uh, Cheryl White came from a group called The Whites, and uh, associated acts uh, to them are Ricky Skaggs. And, you know, Skaggs reminds me of, uh, of another word. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. I think yeah, I know the word you're thinking of, it's Paul. It's like... Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, like skags and skags and and tones. It's Paul Ragonbone. For those of you who don't know, Paul, Paul, why don't you explain what a Ragonbone is? Right, well, all right, I'll explain what a Ragonbone is. I'm sorry, I've just fallen down a Ricky Skaggs hole over here. <laughs> Paul's in a skag hole. <laughs> I'm in a skag hole. <laughs> <laughs> a ragged bone is the crazy crap we found whilst researching a given episode, and uh, it's the stuff that doesn't quite fit anywhere. And so we present it to you, the listener, in a segment we call Rag and Bone. Rag and bone. That's right. 
Let me tell you oh about boy. today's. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Well, today's Rag and Bone, we might actually be able to thank this movie for Jack's move to Nashville. Whoa. No uh, way. Really? Yeah. This was, in fact, one of the first times he had ever gone to Nashville to record music. In an interview for the movie, Jack had said, I wanted to live down south. I always had this feeling, even when I was younger, watching Loretta Lynn in Coal Miner's Daughter, it just felt like home. A couple years ago, I went around to the South preparing for this role, but also thinking, where should I be living? Savannah, Georgia? Muscle Shoals, Alabama? Oxford, Mississippi? Nothing wow. seemed right until Nashville. That's really awesome. That's yeah. And wow. Yeah. Really cool. You know, I, I feel like we wouldn't have gotten so much of Jack White's current personality if he didn't take this movie role. I feel like inevitably he would have gotten to a place similar to this, but we wouldn't have gotten, you know, your Loretta Lynn combination. We wouldn't have gotten the Wanda Jackson right. collaboration. We wouldn't have gotten Willie Nelson live at Third Man Records. Like, it's as well as Third Man Records itself being positioned in Nashville. It just, it all kind of stems from this movie. I mean, yeah, it's a, it is, it's an extension of where it was building to but it's po you know like it's possible at the very least possible that without this movie he it wouldn't have really cemented his relationship with the south the way that wound up happening and and wound up happening very quickly after this because after this you know his stardom continues to rise in fact it gets it gets bigger and then detroit becomes uninhabitable for mr gillis after mm -hmm. that point and so where does he turn he turns to his comfort food he turns to nashville he turns to tennessee um so yeah i mean it's very very plausible but without without this nashville move that this movie possibly created we wouldn't have had all of the clothing and trinkets that third man records gives us we wouldn't have had all of those Rags and bones. Pretty little rags and bones. Oh, I love you, pretty. You pretty, pretty little rags, rags and bones. bones. Oh, man, look at all this. You don't want it? You sure you don't want it? Man? I can do it. Take it. Um, so let's let's get into the track by track, shall we? Track by track. Track 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 track. So Jack appears on five total songs on this this soundtrack. Uh, and, and we're going to talk about those five pretty much exclusively. Uh, the rest of the soundtrack is amazing. Uh, check it out if you get a chance. Uh, as we said, it has Elvis Costello and Sting and Alison Krauss and all kinds of good stuff. But that was mainly that's that was mainly what it has. <laughs> well, it's kind of considered a Jack White record because he is on the most songs of everybody on there. He true. He headlines the entire thing basically. Yeah, um, and uh, worth noting, as you pointed out, James, in our going solo show, really his first entry as a solo performer. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so that's kind of nuts. Yeah, the conception kind of of the solo career that would give us Blunderbuss and Lazaretto and all sorts of other goodies. So track one, he, he kicks off the album with Wayfaring Stranger. Great haunting song. Alone. There is no sin 
It's uh, its origins are that it's a traditional gospel folk song. The history of it is super murky and unclear. A lot of historians actually argue about this song a lot because some trace it to the 1780s, some trace it to the 1800s, some claim it that it's a white Appalachia spiritual, and some claim it's a black slave spiritual. Hmm. But yeah, it's it's there's a lot of debate, a lot of curiosity surrounding the origins of this song. Some think that it even could be not only an American song, but some think it could have come from Ireland. Ooh. But really, it, it made it into the chart, it, to the charting standards when Burl Ives made it a standard of his in the 1940s. What? Yeah. Mr. Goober pees himself. Oh, man. I'm going there to see my mother. I'm going there no more to roam I'm just a going over Jordan I'm just a going over home Wow, it was a uh... Covered by a lot of famous artists, though, including Emmylou Harris, Dolly Parton, Johnny Cash, Neko Case, and most recently, Ed Sheehan. Oh, well, it's kind yeah. of a weird choice for that. I, the Neko Case version um, is exquisite. I listened to that, actually. It's, it's very good. They just kill it. They do such a good job with that song. They also cover Rated X, and they do a fantastic yes. job with it. Yeah, and the, uh, the Johnny Cash version is pretty good, too. It's actually from his uh, later recordings it's from i think 2000 yeah oh cool nice so jack's version he sings on it over mandolin by norman blake fiddle by Stuart duncan and banjo by dirk powell hmm. he actually has said he played wayfaring stranger with two-star tabernacle a band that i had before the white stripes so what? this was actually a song that he had played uh many times in the past and knew it pretty well in fact enough so that it was one of the two songs that he sang for his audition. Wow. That is um, absolutely crazy. Though we didn't get into the musical accompanying live show that they broadcast on TV to basically hype up this album, which was a concert in UCLA's Royce Hall. Hmm. Interesting. In which Jack White appeared uh, behind a lot of the folk singers and performed his songs from, from the album. But yeah, he, he most notably performed Wayfaring Stranger at this live show. So yeah, that that's Wayfaring Stranger. Right from there, we go on to a couple more songs that are not Jack White. We don't hear him again until track six. Yeah, we got a, there's a, there's a T-Bone Burnett song called Like a Songbird That Has Fallen. I Wish My Baby Was Born, performed by Tim Erickson and Riley Bogus. The Scarlet Tide, co-written by Elvis Costello and T-Bone Burnett, performed by Alison Krauss. The Cuckoo, performed by Erickson and Bogus again. And then, and then we, we come back to Jack. At track six, sitting on top of the world. On top of that world. He's sitting right on top of it. He's sitting. Um, it's a another traditional song, but this one we actually have some solid roots on. 
it's by Walter Vinson, sometimes recorded as Walter Jacobs, and Lonnie Chapman, sometimes uh, attributed as Lonnie Carter, who are two members of the Mississippi Sheiks, a popular and influential American fiddle group of the 1930s. Huh. So it was originally recorded by the Mississippi Sheiks as a B-side in February of 1930. They lived around Jackson, Mississippi, and when they weren't making music, they farmed. Um, <laughs> these guys maybe they knew awesome. the maybe they knew the Lovin' Brothers. Oh man, I hope so. These guys were awesome. I love I love <laughs> these guys so much. Vincent claimed to have composed the song one morning after playing at a white dance in Greenwood, Mississippi. Uh, we can hear a little bit of of their their version. Was all it Uh, two years after the original release, after this original release, Big Bill Brunzi covered the song, as wow. did a number of other performers, including early blues legend and Jack White hero, Mr. Charlie Patton. Wow. Uh, now and Big Bill Brunzi, of course, one of George Harrison's favorite artists, Ring the Beetle Bell. Wreck of the Hesperus from Cloud Nine. Yeah. You know, this song continues to get covered, but doesn't get a lot of recognition until Howlin' Wolf, who is a blues singer, does a great rendition of this in 1957. But to get to Jack's version, it came actually from Howlin' Wolf. He said, Sitting on Top of the World was actually one of the first blues songs I learned to play after I heard Howlin' Wolf's version. You know what, he, what age he learned this at? Was 15. He was 15 <laughs> years old when he learned this song. Wow. Yeah, I mean, while other kids in 1990 were laughing at Bart Simpson and um, slapping bra- bracelets uh, on their wrists and uh, <laughs> trapping things in keepers, uh, um, Jack White was listening to Howlin' Wolf records. <laughs> Let's go for you. As is as was the style of the time. So. As was the style of the time. <laughs> Give me five piece for a quarter, you'd say. You know, he had his Lisa Frank pencil case where he kept all his picks and, and his drumsticks <laughs> so that he could play <laughs> Howlin' Wolf records. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> he was a weird kid, is what we're getting at. <laughs> his Nintendo Entertainment System played exclusively eight bit versions of "Sitting on Top of the World." <laughs> Uncle Fester really got down on those. <laughs> uh, Uncle Fester sounds like a really good blues singer. I, James, I no joke. After this podcast, after we've recorded tonight, I'm going to be listening to the Uncle Fe- the Fester's Quest soundtrack maybe for the rest <laughs> of my life. Oh God. Uh, anyway, uh, he had said that uh, 
Sitting on Top of the World was the first blues song that he learned how to play. So I just felt this huge calling that this part was for me. In fact, he actually plays a foot stomping version of this uh, on piano, and it might get loud. He, he's singing with his younger self. Um, oh, really? Okay. Oh, that's that's. I remember that scene. That's cool. Yeah, they play a little bit of the soundtrack version that he does, and then they he, they cut to him doing it live in front of his younger self, who I don't know who that's played by. If any of you guys do, please let us know. James, hold on. I'm going to let you finish, but... Please look it up. I tried today. I couldn't. Hold on. I think I found it. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely it. That's... Uh... Yeah, I think I think that young child was was Fester, James. Paul, I, th- I like Big Bill Brunsey's version of that opening. <laughs> Fester's quest. The screen just stalled on him sitting in that reclino chair with the sunglasses, <laughs> sipping a mai tai. <laughs> All right, sorry, continue. Anyway, it was recorded for the soundtrack <laughs> in two thousand and three. Mike Compton plays the mandolin on it. It's a good song, good tune. Yeah, it's great. So, Paul, we. We then have a couple more songs that aren't Jack. Oh, yeah. We got Am I Born to Die, which is a traditional song, uh, again, by Tim Erickson. We've got You Will Be My In True Love. That's a song we talked about, written by Sting and recorded by Alison Krauss. Then we've got I'm Going Home, which is credited to no one. So, okay. Uh, And then, of (laughs) course, that comes to a great, just wonderful Jack White song, Never Far Away. His first solo song through and through that he wrote and released as Jack White written by jack white in the theme of the movie it's, it's uh, a- yeah, i first became aware of this song when the acoustic album came out last year because i i just spaced on getting to know the cold mountain soundtrack for a long time and when i heard that just raw without any context it absolutely floored me i loved it so much it really reminded me of like the best mccartney acoustic ditty songs it's just a beautiful number he does a great job on it yeah in fact a lot of people do call this song mccartney-esque it's it's different for him but it's definitely a progression of his work right the singing was recorded in nashville but he added acoustic guitar later at Capitol studios in california ah Okay. Originally was just him singing with the mandolin player Norman Blake as well as the cello player Nancy Blake, a duo who are actual country music legends, having toured around with Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson, Robert Plant, and many others. Yeah, we talked a little bit about them on the Jack White Acoustic album, episode three, if you'd like a little more background there. Right. We do go into a little bit of this song in that episode as well. But yeah, the song is a story of Inman's character throughout the movie. It's his journey. It's his thoughts. He's never far away. Yeah. Uh, it's, it is included on the Acoustic Recordings album and also included on the Jack White approved Aluminum Project by Richard Russell and Joby Talbot. The, What's that? If you don't know, it's an unofficial official White Stripes orchestral project. Huh. Uh, they turn the Stripes music into symphony music. Um, what? Cool stuff. Why have I not heard this? I want to hear it, this. Rob Jones did artwork for it, and he also did some promotional stuff for it. It's really neat. 
Jack White's oft art collaborator, Rob Jones of Animal Rummy, machine gun silhouette enthusiast. Yes, indeed. But yeah, in the uh, in the acoustic recordings timeline on Jack White's website, he actually posts the production notes for this song. Cool. Uh, with all of the different parts, it's like a it's an interesting little thing. I uh, we'll put it up in the show notes. And right from there, the next track, the very next track, is Jack White doing "Christmas Time Will Soon Be Over." And ah. Paul, we, we did learn, uh, Paul. Should we should we hear a little bit of this song? Soon be over in the Christmas time. Soon be over in the Christmas time. Soon be over and we'll join the band. Catch in a fiddle in the Christmas time. Catch in a fiddle in the Christmas time. Catch in a fiddle in the Christmas time. Then we'll join the band. <laughs> Christmas time will soon be over. We actually got into, uh, like I said, on episode 12, we gave a little bit of background on it that Paul had learned on the fly. Uh, which is super oh, yeah. interesting stuff. It's a it's a mixture of different folk tunes and fiddle tunes. This this version of it though is actually the traditional song with some other Jack White additional original content mixed in. It's arranged by Jack White and Norman Blake. Norman Blake being the uh, mandolin player on Never Far Away. It includes harmony vocals by Brendan Gleeson and Riley Bogus, as well as mandolin by Norman Blake himself yeah uh, good song good tune i mean it's a song <laughs> it's like a hoedown you know like in the movie it's used in that regard and it works very well there i'm not sure i would like sit down and listen to it just for funzos but it's an atmospheric piece that is very clearly a successful folk tune i would say it's a it's a successful song that people sit down and listen to all the time because it, it's the roots of Christmas Time's a Comin', a very popular song for a very popular Christmas song that's played almost every year on the radio. So, I don't well, know. let me rephrase that. I'm not sure I would. I, I, okay. I, I put this under like I wouldn't sit down and listen to Turkey in the Straw unless Mr. Carl Butterball was was scatting all over it. Excuse me, did somebody <laughs> call my name? Carl, Carl, what's up? What'd you get for Christmas, Carl? I got this wonderful. Turkey Ripper. Oh, wait, wait, oh yeah, I'm sorry. Turkey what? It's a turkey ripper. Turkey ripper. Okay, what is it? It takes a delicious cow butter ball, live goblet turkey, and turns it into a delicious cow butter ball turkey fresh for the eat. <laughs> wait, wait, so the, what is, does the turkey ripper scrape away the skin and the eyeballs and things from the of animal? Of course not. Those are some of the most delicious aspects. Carl, have you redefined giblets for a new generation? It's most important to remove the giblet, as we know. But uh, as always, as I'm using my genuine Carl Butterball Christmas Turkey Rip, I am humming along the Christmas time. Resume me over, Christmas time. Resume me over, Christmas time. Resume me over, Christmas time. join. I wonder who out there actually enjoys Carl Butterball. <laughs> Paul, you're looking at him. All right, so we got Christmas time will soon be over. 
And then we, we, you know, we have a couple more tracks, Paul. Yeah, we get Ruby with the eyes that sparkle. It's a traditional song, which is fortuitous with the name Ruby in there after Renee Zellweger's character. You know, it's got mm-hmm. the little connection there. And that's performed by Stuart Duncan and Dirk Powell. Then we get Lady Margaret, which is another traditional song performed by Cassie Franklin. We get Great High Mountain, then, by Mr. Jack White. That's right, track 14. Once I stood at the foot of a great high mountain That I wanted so much to climb And on top of this mountain was a beautiful fountain That flows with the waters Great High Mountain. It's another traditional song. Not much out there on its origins. I really tried to find it, but I mostly found that it was originally arranged by Ralph Stanley uh, in 1976. Ralph Stanley being a well-known country musician. When it was recorded for this album, they used Ralph Stanley's version on cello as Nancy Blake again, mandolin Mike Compton on vocals and harmony, Cassie Franklin and Tim Erickson. In reference to Ralph Stanley, in the interview with Jim Jarmusch uh, from earlier, Jarmusch had asked Jack, did you record something with bluegrass legend Ralph Stanley? And Jack White responded, he was there, he recorded some things for the soundtrack, and there was one song where it was a call and response with about 50 people in the room. He was calling out phrases and people would sing them back to him, sort of like a gospel number, and I was part of that. Huh, interesting. Yeah. You know, they they actually named an ongoing country tour with Alison Krauss and other country singers. They named it after this song. They named it Great the Great High Mountain Tour, and Ralph Stanley performed in that. And they performed numbers from this Cold Mountain soundtrack, and they performed also numbers from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? and a couple other country hits and bluegrass folk songs. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So Great High Mountain is a song reminiscent of an old Southern Baptist hymn sung in churches in the American South. But I'm getting this from a running blog by someone named Owen. So I'm (laughs) not sure. Owen, the hit character from Jurassic Park 3? It's actually Jurassic Park 2. And it's it's Nick Van Owen played by the swinger himself. Nick Van Owen. This is Ian Malcolm. What's your background? Wildlife photography? Yeah, wildlife, combat, you name it. This is a big dumb tangent for for a great high mountain. Uh, so that that does it for the Jack White tracks. If there were about five more tracks after that, Paul, do you want to do you want to name those? Oh yeah. All right, we got Anthem performed and written by Gabriel Yared. We have Ada plays again performed and written by Yared. Ada and Inman. The two main characters. It, this looks like songs, like themes specifically written for the film. Then we have something called Love Theme. Uh, again, these are consistent with more of a traditional soundtrack kind of deal, which look yeah. to be lumped in here toward the end. But as you can see, I mean, those are only four songs. Not a lot of the standard traditional style soundtrack fare in this thing. Yeah, um, the score. The score is kind of set as a background, not as the foreground of this album. Sure. Yeah, and they try and bring like songs that are in movie to the fore. In in the thing ends with "I do Mia," uh, which sounds like a millennial pledge. I do me. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and that is a traditional song, looks like, with portions of it written by Charles Wesley. And that is performed by Sacred Harp Singers, which we t- touched on earlier. So, Paul, that'll, that'll do it for the track by track. Oh, track, 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 track. Oh, track by track, track. All right. The reception and reviews for this show uh, were pretty glowing and positive as well for the movie. The soundtrack won a BAFTA award for best film music. It also won the World Soundtrack Award for best original score of the year. Soundtrack was nominated for three Academy Awards, was also nominated for a Grammy and a Golden Globe. Wow. A lot of different uh, awards and award nominations. All music had said about the soundtrack. Jack White opens the record with a stark rendition of Wayfaring Stranger uh, featuring Nashville heavyweights. However, it's the self-penned Never Far Away that elevates White above his garage rock trappings with its delicate front porch picking and wistful <laughs> lyrics. It manages to walk the line between heartache and puppy love with a sweetness that's genuinely moving. Yeah. Pitchfork had said, White had always been vaguely preoccupied with his ever-important, if occasionally unclear, tenets of authenticity, and his work on Cold Mountain is an oddly telling mirror to the White Stripes throwback blues rock parade. Gone are the wild, fluttering yelps of his Stripes work, replaced by scrappy, talking, blues squeaks and gruff whispers, and his trademark guitar noodling has been mercifully superseded by scraped tinny strings and perfect bluegrass picking. Wow. A lot of people uh, taken aback by his non-White Stripes agenda here. People seem to like it. Yeah. It was an interesting foray for him and a hint of things to come, for sure. Uh, So, Paul, I I think that's going to do it. Whoa, that's going to do it. Are we going to kick it to our third man this week? Yeah, let's kick it to our third man. We'd like to welcome our third man this week, (laughs) Mr. Brian Payer the fifth, the sixth. Brian. Oh, God. It's, uh, it's, it's great to be here. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, Brian. How's it going? It's, it's a going. <laughs> <laughs> so we brought Brian here because he's a historian and because we're talking about Cold Mountain, which is, what's the word I'm looking for? It, a period piece. It's a period, yes, a period piece about the American Civil War or more specifically the ending of the American Civil War. Right. So we brought him here to maybe give some validity to some of the movie, if not some of Jack White's role in the movie. Normally, uh, normally we just give sort of Jack White historical context, but this is going to be actual history. Right. So I'm very excited to learn something. Yeah. The pressure's on, Brian. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we'll, we'll start at the very beginning. Do you know anything of the Siege of Petersburg? Uh, yeah, I, I know a bit about the Siege of Petersburg. I actually visited the site a couple of years ago. This is late in the war, and this is after uh, General Grant had already taken control of the army, which means that now the Union has taken up the uh, they've taken up the strategy of basically trying to pound the Confederates into submission by sending wave after wave of humans to just die in a meat grinder and just wear out the Confederates. Uh, because nice. the advantage that the Union had was way more human beings and materials than the uh, Confederates. And when you have that, you kind of want to press that. Previous commanders were a bit afraid to do that. They didn't really necessarily want to give up positions or expend an amount of human life that would have taken to basically slug it out with the Confederates when the Confederates kept outmaneuvering them. But in this instance, it proved to be effective and pushed General Lee back to the point where he actually decided to hold up at uh, Petersburg. Noticing that he didn't have any sort of superiority in numbers or ability to outmaneuver Grant, Lee decided to set up a defensive perimeter around Petersburg, a massive trench works. 
and this is one of the instances where if, if you if if in 1914 during World War One you were paying attention to the Civil War, you may have avoided yourself some grief because you've noticed that dudes in holes shooting at other dudes is actually pretty effective. You'd have learned that from the Battle of Petersburg because it was extremely effective and the Union lost over twice as many soldiers as the Confederates lost at that battle. And the Battle of the Crater is actually one of the sections of the Battle of Petersburg. It happens in um, July 30th. Actually, it's it's kind of funny. The idea behind the crater is actually put forward by, uh, overseen by uh, General Burnside, who actually was previously in charge of the Union Army and was yes. defeated by General Lee. With some of the best General, best hair, uh, hairstyles of all time. Yeah, it's, General Ambrose Burnside, right? Yeah, the name yeah. Sideburns is named after, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. check okay. out his facial hair if you get a chance, because it is freaking <laughs> wicked. For the last time, get rid of those sideburns. Look, Mr. Burns. I don't know what you think cyburns are, but... Don't argue with me! Just get rid of them! What they plan to do is actually, it's 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 not anything really new. It's something that had been done in warfare for hundreds of years. Basically, you just dig a tunnel underneath the enemy fortifications. You set a bunch of dynamite there and explosives, and you blow them up. You blow up the fortifications. This had been done in medieval warfare and, you know, even beyond. But getting back to the Battle of the Crater, they basically just dig a hole under the trench work and plan to blow up the area underneath and collapse a series of trench works, creating an opening that they can then penetrate with the forces. Mm. Unfortunately, there's kind of like some uh, really shitty communication going on, and a bunch of the Union forces just kind of charge into the hole, the crater that <laughs> forms, hence the name, Battle of the Craters, that didn't form in their <laughs> vantage. So now rather than guys sitting in trenches shooting at guys running over a field, it's now... A bunch of people packed into a crater that are like all pressed up against each other being shot at from above like a turkey shoot they actually use the phrase in the movie turkey shoot right yeah um, if anyone's a game of thrones fan not really any spoilers but uh not a little bit of spoilers but think battle of the bastards it's that yeah except yeah, now yeah. you're being shot at by guns so great yeah Great job, everybody. <laughs> well, now, wait a minute. If I learned anything from Game of Thrones, it's that one individual can persuade the arrows and things to fly around him as he charges forward with his emotions. Is that is that historically accurate? It, it might be. I don't have any documentation on that. The, the thing is that bullets are slightly less easily persuaded than arrows. Ooh, ah, well, so. there, there was that scene where Jude Law was riding a dragon into battle. <laughs> this is the section of the podcast where we test how far James can fake his way through a Game of Thrones conversation. <laughs> Look, Go. All right. Uh, uh, mother of dragons. Dragon's Den. Uh, yeah. Uh, the Sistine dra- Dragon dragons. Tales. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, that's that's cool. Was the was the <laughs> battle in the movie did that seem historically accurate? Uh, yeah, it was as historically accurate as you're going to get in, in something like that. It was a good representation. You did have instances of people sort of entering the crater and, and Union soldiers coming out of the crater to fight as well. That's where you see uh, Law's character get wounded because the actual real W.P. Inman was wounded during that battle. This huh. is actually based on... So the novel is written in 92, but it's based on like a, a family story that that oral tradition that we passed down through our family one of those old family folk tales of wp inman who was the author's great great uncle wow i did not i had no idea this was historically based i just assumed it was fiction you just schooled us however i'll school you it's 97 but that's the only thing yeah what did i say that's 92 but that's the only thing i knew about it was that it was a book written in 97 so that's crazy, though. I didn't. I had wow. no idea that this was actually a true story. Yeah, well, true, wow. true-ish. The author himself says he takes liberties with the story, but it is about his uh, supposed great-great-uncle who supposedly did make this trek after being wounded and deserting uh, and was killed by home guard. 
So the bare bones is kind of true, okay. arguably. Well, that that brings us to the home guard. Now, were they depicted accurately in this film? Or do you want to tell us a little bit about the home guard? E- okay, yeah. yes and no. That's the funny thing. The home guard are an interesting sort of animal because... On the one hand, arguably, the movie does kind of depict them accurately in some instances, but also not really because that iteration of the Home Guard isn't representative of the Home Guard in general. And what I mean by that is is that there wasn't really a cut and paste rule for what the Home Guard was like, depending on who was leading it and in what district it was or what state. It could be completely different. It could have different rules. It could have different organization and it could have different duties. So basically what the Home Guard is, it's it's a militia that kind of pops up during the Civil War to be something like a pseudo police force, but also a defense force in case of uh, Union raids into mm. Southern territory. And it's not made up of young men because most of the young men have been conscripted by April 16th, 1862. Oh, wow. They're starting to be conscripted by April 16th, 1862. By 1863, the majority of them are, you know, really getting collected because that's when the conscription act is passed in the uh, in the confederate territories the confederacy actually passes a conscription act before the union the union doesn't institute conscription or you know the draft as we would call it until okay, uh, yeah. 63 huh yeah i was i was gonna i was just gonna ask what the hell a conscription was or a conscription yeah conscription? yeah conscription yeah. is kind of like the european term right it's or levy a... yeah another fun phrase that you find in history for the conscription is the blood tax that's a fun one. Jesus. Gross. Uh, <laughs> a little more accurate. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. so in that regard, a lot of the characters that you'd see in the in the Home Guard would have been uh, older folks, underage, like people who were not eligible for the draft because they were too young. Mm-hmm. So like under 16, because even at the age of 16, if, even if it wasn't within the parameters of, of the draft, you kind of futz it and go uh, and join anyway. This is an interesting one. If you were deemed to have some importance to the home front, that they needed to keep you there. You could be kept back in the home guard. Um, so if like, you had a, a particular, like a doctor or a, like a vocation that would be useful to the town kind of thing? Yeah, if you had a vocation that was useful to the town or you just happened to be the son of someone who was politically useful in the town. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Got it. And this is yeah. this is actually was one of the puzzling things of the, uh, I don't remember the character's name, but the, uh, I don't know, the albino yeah, looking the, gentleman. Yeah, the weird blonde haired sure. man. The Malfoy. Yeah, the Malfoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh... Now we're going to play the game. Let's let's see how long Brian can fake knowing Harry Potter. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, so he makes the comment later. He's got like the the faith of youth or something like that. And I'm like, why is he there? He looks a bit young. The older guy who's trying to bang the the main female character. He makes sense. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's probably like you said, you know, the daddy, I don't want to go to war. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That kind of yeah they they're kind of def they, you know they're played as villains in the thing for sure Were, did they have a reputation for letting that power go to their heads basically because the towns and cities that they were living in were there's suddenly this big vacuum of young men who would naturally be sort of running things I assume at that time so in that power vacuum did you see a lot of nefarious sort of activity or or not really. Not necessarily. So this is the funny thing. In a lot of instances, you might not even see the home guard in your local territory, even though they have a home guard on paper. Yeah. And this is the funny thing about militias before like 1915, when we organized them into like a legitimate National Guard. Militias are a funny animal in the U.S. history because. Yeah, like a Bulbasaur. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. it's like this weird dinosaur with a plant. Yes. Um, God only knows what it is. 
Uh, probably seeds. <laughs> Most, mostly plants. Hang in there, Bulbasaur! Now it's time to give it your leech seed! Militias, they, they, they're not all definitely like well organized in a lot of instances because there really isn't all that much oversight, particularly when you get to the fringe territories, Illinois or Wisconsin. Like that's the fringe at, at that time in the, in the 1860s. Yeah. That's the frontier. So even figures like Abraham Lincoln, who was in charge of his militia unit, mm-hmm. uh, they mostly just met up to like drink and wrestle. He actually got in trouble during the Black Hawk War because he was more interested in just kind of futzing around than he was in fighting natives. So that that was a thing. But the same wow. rule applies to the Home Guard because they're effectively a militia. And you'd think there would be some federal oversight to them, but there really wasn't that much federal or I guess I should use yeah. the term loosely because yeah. we're talking about Confederates, but Confederal. Con- confederal oversight. <laughs> Can we coin that? Can we make that a thing? Yes, please. That is a trademark. So, but yeah, there, there really isn't much oversight. And there's the added thing of like, so you got a bunch of people who have what seems like a really important job, right? Because they're being kind of police, kind of a military guard, and kind of whatever civil servants that the, the town needs. But on the other hand, most of them have other shit they're doing. They're farmers and stuff. They got other stuff to worry about. So it's like a lot of it's honorary. They don't really want to show up for drill. They don't feel like it. And also, there's the added problem of it, it opens up the opportunity for an abuse of power. These are still your neighbors that you're dealing with. And these are people right. within your community that you're going to have to deal with after the war is over when they're right. when they're children come back mm. so they couldn't go that crazy because there was going to be theoretically an end to these things yeah and also th- i don't think that most of them would have wanted to go all that crazy because i mean once again they're they're your neighbors i mean you see the, the characters in the movie that want to try and take in ada after her father dies and that really is more of the archetype of the time in a lot of instances of people right. of, of communities trying to come together particularly in the time of war this also goes to that the the, the question of loss during the civil war one of the under appreciated things about the Civil War by uh, a lot of people is that they don't realize that more Americans died in the Civil War than in any other war that America's fought. But also wow. more Americans died in the Civil War than in World War One, World War Two, Vietnam and Korea put together. Holy crap. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I guess it makes sense considering the only people dying were Americans. Yeah. Yeah. When, when both but... sides are killing each other and both sides are Americans, it's, it's a big deal. But the numbers, I you know, this is kind of like a vague kind of numbers. This is aggregates from other sources. So the generally yeah. accepted number is somewhere in the neighborhood of 620,000 during the Civil War. Wow. Whereas during those other wars I named uh, collectively was 616, 640. Holy crap. Wow. That's dramatic amount of people. Yeah, there was tremendous loss during the Civil War. And so entire communities are feeling this all at once. So it does encourage them to kind of come together. There's there's a sense of collective loss within the community, but also within the nation. Yeah. Even if it's only happening, the Union feeling its collective loss and Confederates collective loss kind of separately at first. In that regard, you'd be less likely to see people from the Home Guard abusing their power because of the fact that they'd be in the same boat. They'd be feeling a lot of the same loss. It's possible even their cousins, their brothers, their their siblings, their sons were lost in the war as well. Another instance of, you know, when talking about casualties is that when you signed up for service in the Civil War, you didn't just sign up for, you know, the army. You actually joined more or less as a unit. So entire regiments would kind of sign up together from the same town or from the same county, depending on how many people they got, which means that if your regiment went into battle and got hit hard, that means that that entire county would get all of their casualties at once. So it put a lot of the losses on particular places. You find these insane casualty rates where certain counties lost 
you know, 90 something percent of their battle age males from single battles just because those wow. were regiments that got wiped out during the battle. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah, that's not something I, mean, I ever thought about. One thing that does bring me to is you were saying people were taking in others. Would they take in how kind would they be to people who deserted and adding on to that how often did people desert and then adding on to that how often did they desert and become troubadours <laughs> uh, you know i can't i can't speak to the last one although the actual answer is going to be not as many as i want them to be uh, so desertion was a serious yeah. problem in the civil war but it was also a funny problem of sorts because you had essentially two different types of desertion uh one involving creamy and sugary confections and the other involving the sahara (laughs) right right right. um desertion there's the more serious desertion where you like just got the hell out of dodge and left you're like i'm not doing this anymore I'm, i'm gone and this could be done through you know either just leaving or going across enemy lines uh in a lot of instances going across enemy lines might not be a great idea because you might just be thrown into a prison but oftentimes if it it was at a border state that was union uh, on the union side they might allow you to renounce the Confederacy and sign up to become an American citizen again. In, in like Tennessee did that because if they provided incentive for the soldiers to leave, then that would weaken their opponents. What, did Abraham Lincoln try to build a wall by any chance? N- no, okay. uh, his, okay. his generals might have. And we're going to make the Confederates pay for it. They're going to make the Confederates <laughs> pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> now, wait. Uh, so wouldn't there be some trust issues there? Like, I mean, I would assume that. A Confederate commander might say, okay, you 10 are going to go desert and then you're just going to spy for me over there. Like, you know what I mean? Wouldn't that be kind of a tricky situation for the Union? Uh, Yeah, you'd think it would be a tricky situation. But, um, you know, at the same time, it almost wouldn't make sense to have just people walk off with like equipment when equipment's so rare within the Confederacy. But also they're going to be less reliable spies than, you know, say a cousin that you might have across state boundaries or yeah. cavalry uh, units that can ride in and ride out, but also do some damage while they're there. I mean, they can raid while they're on the other end. In the movie, they actually do depict Union cavalry that seemingly are on either a scouting or a raiding mission. They're, they're definitely foraging at the least. They're trying to find food uh, in the countryside as to whether or not they're expected to be raiding or they look like they're too small to be raiding. Their unit's just big enough probably to be to be scouting. Yeah, there's a, a Union raid right in the beginning, I think. Or am I... After the after the Battle of the Crater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Inman gets shot in the neck or something. <laughs> I think he gets yeah. grazed or something. Yeah, he gets grazed yeah. in the neck. That's that's more of like a skirmish, less right. of a raid, more of a skirmish. This is where we get into like particular terms. Mr. Is... Brian Historian Sorry. over here. Uh, <laughs> no. Skirmishes, not raids. Yeah. I'm getting a little drunk off this rum. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm regretting not having some. But yeah, I mean, the, the skirmishing in that is is the intent of following up with like a more concentrated attack. The raiding is, is an attempt to weaken the enemy's supply lines and really attack the civilians if you can to weaken their resolve. But I actually, I, I didn't get to the other uh, version of desertion that you would have seen. It's comically called the French leave. It's where you dip out for like a couple of days or like a week, get your jollies off, hit up a brothel, and then come back. <laughs> and then when you come back, they're like, whatever, don't worry about it. Just don't do it again. Yeah, because they need the soldiers, right? So. Yeah, yeah. It's, on the one hand, they need the soldiers. And on the other hand, they also need them to not be rambunctious in camp. So it's easier to send them off God. to get their 
you know, get their rocks off and then come back after they've sown their wild oats. <laughs> right. Uh, so that way they're after more... After they've become troubadours. After they've troubadoured <laughs> a bit. So uh, in a lot of instances, that was more more accepted. It was kind of one of those things that you didn't really talk about. Officers would talk about it with one another sort of thing, so they knew. But you wouldn't, like, punish soldiers for that unless they, like, really wrecked up town. So I have a question. How hard would it be to actually escape? Because in the movie, Jude Law just kind of gets out of bed and walks away. And, like, there doesn't seem to be much fanfare over it. He's just like, okay, I'm leaving now, and then walks out the door. <laughs> After uh, meeting would with it a be... blind peanut salesman. Yeah, and then suddenly he's at a beach and he's walking. It, what, how strict, uh, particularly toward the end of the war where everybody's taxed, I'm assuming supplies and actual personnel are at an all-time low, I would assume. Uh, would would yeah. it be easy for one to escape? Well, that's actually funny. By the end of the war, uh, what Jude Law is doing actually wouldn't, his, his character, what he's doing isn't all that remarkable. You'd have seen mass desertions by that point. So I had said before, July 30th is when the crater happens. The actual W.P. Inman, when he deserts, it's in October. They make it seem like he leaves like in like a couple weeks. That's not really the case. By that point, by October, at that point, there's only a couple months left of the war. The war ends mid-65. Uh, and we've already seen Sherman's March to the Sea rampage of the South. Yeah. And a lot of people are now sending letters to their relatives that are in the, uh, the army saying, hey, you know, our farm just burned down and all our cattle are dead because the Union just rolled through here like a wrecking ball. So, you know, if you were if you were a soldier from like Arkansas, Georgia, particularly Atlanta, which I mean, you couldn't find two bricks to stack on top of each other in Atlanta. He burned that so hard to the ground. Chances are, they, you know, you had a higher rate of desertion um, because you were getting letters and you were receiving information about this terrible stuff happening in your in your hometown. But even in those other states, they make it seem like everything was well and good in North Carolina. But you know, they're going to go. The people from there are going through supply shortages at this point because there's a blockade and because mm. a lot of the foodstuffs are going to the army. Yeah. So they're going to be hurting as well. So he's, he's not really necessarily remarkable in that regard for deserting. But also when it comes to desertion, really, it's just a matter of timing. When you desert makes it easier or harder. So like it would have been very, very difficult for him to have deserted when he was in Petersburg, mm -hmm. because that's, you know, you're in a city that's heavily fortified, lots of trenches. People know where you are because you're expected to be places at certain times. When you're like have a camp set up and you're just kind of chilling, if you're nearby a town, you know, they could be they could be in camp for weeks to months at a time. A bit easier to desert than if you just dip out during the night. That's why you had so often in the case of uh, French leave mm -hmm. where people are just leaving in the middle of the night and then, you know, come back a week later or whatever. And, you know, if it's, you know, on the march or whatever, that's also an opportunity for you to leave. The home guard thing, actually, with with regards to desertion, that's a funny case because they actually weren't necessarily going to kill you for desertion hmm. because of the need for soldiers. The, the corporal punishment that kills deserters, that was starting to fall out of favor in the 60s. Early in the war, uh, 1860s, sorry. I was going to say. Early in, <laughs> by the 60s, 60s is very out of favor. Early in the war, you did have cases of people being executed for desertion, but any excuse that, you know, Abraham Lincoln found to, like, kind of give them a pardon, he would try and pardon them. But the need for soldiers made it so that other methods of discipline would have been put into effect rather than that. Just before the war, they had gotten rid of the lash. Uh, so you weren't yeah. going to get like, lashed or caned oh, for God. desertion. So but you, you, still... were, you were forced into troubadour service. Yeah, you'd be yeah. forced into yeah. troubadour service uh, while wearing a barrel. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually not making up the barrel part. <laughs> a lot to... of times people would have to wear barrels. To oh, well, they were deserters. Well, well wait a minute. No, no, wait, oh, wait. Just to signify it? Like a scarlet letter or something? Wow. Yep. yep. I feel like Jack White's worn a barrel or two in his lifetime, uh, you know, just, just for funzos. Yeah, yeah. Just to become a little more in tune with his role, he wore a yeah. barrel for 
two weeks in the mountains of Romania where this yeah. was filmed, by the way. Um, <laughs> He's very method. I guess the only other thing I, I think we should get into is, uh, how'd you like it? Yeah, be, be honest. I don't, we don't really care. I didn't really care for it. It kind of <laughs> dragged on. The, I don't know. And like uh, certain scenes, I guess they kind of made sense in the in the book. They didn't quite strike me as being all that sensical. Like they weren't things that humans would do, I don't think. I don't know. Yeah. Leaps of logic. I'm, yeah, I mean, it took that historical time for him definitely tried to fit it into a mold of a kind of a uh, Fabio style romance novel sort of thing. It was a little thick there, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, otherwise, it was, I mean, other than being very long, I thought it was interesting enough, you know. Interestingly, the, the, so the, I guess they must have been home guard, the guys who capture them in the middle of the, uh, in the middle of the movie when they're at right, that the, weird hickish sure. oh yeah, yeah, yeah kind of kind oh, of offensively yeah. hickish on the part of hollywood <laughs> in that in that middle part those guys who capture them and put them in chains it's not really stated outright but it looks like they would have been more what home guard would have done is that they're bringing them back to the army um, because they ah. would have gotten paid for that okay uh, there's bounties for catching deserters okay huh. so you're actually there's a cash incentive for you to return deserters which makes all of that killing that they do in in Cold Mountain kind of nonsensical to me. Yeah, it makes for a good villain, but... Yeah, yeah. And it makes sense within the context of their character. So, like, because it's being built up on the, the trope, the idea of this is someone from town who's your neighbor who was nothing before the war, but now is given power during the war over his fellow neighbors. Mm -hmm. They don't explicitly state that, but you kind of see that with his character. He's he's disrespected in the beginning because he's not going to war because he's too old, but he's given power, so he's, you know, he is abusing that power. Right. And it's it's it makes good movie, and it there probably are cases of it happening here and there, but it it was less it wasn't the rule for the home guard because once again there's there's a whole lot of reasons why they wouldn't just go around killing their neighbors. Because, I mean, right. after, like, after the war, they're still your neighbors. <laughs> right, yeah. Sorry about all that uh, killing of your husband and everything. Uh, <laughs> sorry? Oops. Whoopsie. <laughs> well, this has been very interesting. Um, I feel like we actually learned something today. Thank you so much, Brian, for joining us. Yeah, normally, uh, no these, normally these segments are a little shorter, but I, I was so actually interested in what you had to say, which is rare because yeah. we usually have Mike on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so thank you I, we do really appreciate you coming in do, is there anything you want to plug butts <laughs> butts everybody butts butts you heard it here first thank you very much Brian <laughs> thank you Brian catch you later thanks for having me All right, so Paul, before we end this podcast, I think we left people off on enough of a cliffhanger. Wouldn't you say? Dun, 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 dun. You are Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> you are hanging yes. off of that cliff. <laughs> I'm, I'm hanging, baby. It's rated R for some God only knows reason. <laughs> yes. For those of you who don't know, last episode, Would You Fight for My Love, it was called. Uh, James and I duked it out on the fields of Jack. We, peaked, we picked our least favorite Jack White songs. The other had to defend it, and the person who defended it best got to pick a topic for the other to research and do. And James, I do believe, sir... You were the victor. That's right. As as in another Sylvester Stallone movie, Rocky, I was the victor. Was he a victor in Rocky or was, was did Apollo Man, win? I don't know. I don't <laughs> I don't What was the robot's name? That's what I want to know. Happy birthday, Molly. That was the character I was following in that franchise. <laughs>
all these robots <laughs> or whatever. Please make a wish. It's creepy that talks, that thing. Creepy? This is the great. I wish I had one of these when I was growing up. Go on, make a wish, like he says. I wish I wasn't in this nightmare. I think it was Paul. Anyway, anywho, Paul, uh, uh, yes, I am the winner, and I get to choose which topic you get to research and make a wish. Uh, lead. Please make a wish. And Paul, I think you're gonna actually going to like this topic. Please make a wish. Drum roll. Okay. Paul, you're going to be researching Jack White's inspiration. A very classy wish. Very nice. What do you think there? <laughs> Crickets. I want you to look into Delta Blues singers that Jack White has gathered inspiration from. Your son House. I thought you were going to I'm sorry. I I thought you were going to say a name. I was waiting for the (laughs) name. Like his inspiration and then name. And I was like, what are you talking about? All right. Okay. I know nothing about that. Okay, that's a challenge. I'm, I'm up. Yeah, I'm up and, to it. Though. And, and look, I'm not. I'm not telling you to do it. Boxing. 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 <laughs> I'm not telling you to do it all in one episode. I'm just saying this might be the start of a of a new series, or it might not be. Who knows? It's up to you for your discretion. I want to learn more about that, and I don't feel like researching it, so I'm passing it to you. <laughs> well. I mean, as much as I enjoy uh, 80-year-old blind men in the bayou, (laughs) I can't wait, James. I'm excited, and I can't help but think that Jack White himself, at a tender age of 13, was doing the same exact thing. I count myself lucky, and uh, that's a great topic, James. Paul, that that sure was great, and thank you for uh, for helping me learn... (laughs) And helping me to help you learn about oh, yes. this, this film. Yes, I, we all learned a lot. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in this week. Uh, we'll hopefully cover all of Jack's other movie appearances. Again, there aren't all that many, but there's enough to keep the keep the topic rolling, so we'll, we'll keep hitting those up. Uh, in the meantime, you, know, you can always catch us every Wednesday. We put up a new episode every week, and uh, thank you to everyone who's been supporting the show. You've all been tremendous. There's a couple key shout-outs here we want to give. Again, we kind of break these into our the people that have been following us week after week and really always chiming in and and helping out and all that stuff and and giving us stop breaking downs and these things so those are the ones we're gonna we're gonna shout out to first here we have uh jeremy riles thank thank you you, jeremy Jeremy. thank you to kelly durga as always thank you kelly kelly we love you uh and then we have adrian king here as always thank you adrian Uh, always commenting always friendly ever smiling mr andre lyman Thank you, sir. Now, uh, we also have some shout-outs for new people who have liked our uh, page or who have interacted with us recently. We have Manya McCarty. Thank you, Manya. Thank you very much. We have Paul Unger. Thank you, Paul. Paul, your uh, Paul Powers will unite, and we will take the form of a weird shut-in Jack White fan. (laughs) Rachel Brown. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks so much, Rachel. And also, Ben Carnes. Thanks so much. Ben Carnes. Uh, So then we want to thank Sam Kubert and Tom Valenti for the help in recording and production on our theme song, We're the Third Men. Thank you, Sam and Tom. Thanks, guys. And thank you to Susanna Roundtree for the amazing intro and outro to our program. Thank you, Susanna. You can find her uh, at Susanna Mated on Tumblr and Twitter and 
pretty much all over the interwebs. Yes, indeed. And uh, Susanna, thank you as well for patiently taking my pizza phone call, which uh, astute listeners might remember from the bloopers at the very tail end of episode 14. I assure you all, I was quite drunk. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you to our third man this week. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook. We're facebook.com slash thirdman. We have a very vibrant Facebook group there. A lot of you have been joining lately. Uh, It's really great to hear from everybody. Please continue to do so. We love interacting with you on there. Yeah. And uh, if you want to talk to us on Twitter, you can uh, tweet at us at thirdmencast. Come on down to Twitter country. Yeah. Yeah. Come on down. Uh, and then we got Tumblr here, thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. Uh, a lot of you have been joining via Tumblr lately. That's really cool. Thank you for that. Yeah, thanks. And if you want to go straight to the source where we put up our podcast and put up our show notes too, you can go to our website, thethirdmen.wordpress.com. We also, you can email us with corrections or just say hi. You know, we're happy to, we, we want to hear from you guys. So you can email us at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, also email us if you think we forgot something that is a fact. Maybe we'll smell it for you. Who knows? Yeah, we might do that. Uh, James does awesome YouTube visualizers, so you can check those out there. Mm-hmm. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us because we need uh, more ear holes listening to this here podcast yeah and and that's you guys spreading the word you know please tell a friend if you know a jack white fan please let them know about the podcast because the whole reason we're doing this is to connect with more jack white fans you know we're not really we're not you know making any money obviously or doing anything like that this is all just to chat with you guys so yeah let them know and uh hopefully they'll get they'll give the show a listen and that's gonna do us this week as always uh i'll be looking for a home uh i'll be looking for a home See you next Wednesday. I'll be looking for a palm tree. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. I'm only getting like a portion of your eye, Dad. That's all you need. <laughs> um. Now I can only see the inside of your elbow. <laughs> I can't. S- <laughs> Good night. Okay. Good night, Dad's hand. In the cold, cold mountain, but him, but him. In the cold, cold mountain, but him, but him, but him. What can you tell me about uh, cold? Cold, cold mountain there, James. I don't know. I didn't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Where do we live off? Okay. Paul has just uh, returned back with some delicious movie mm. snacks. Uh, let, he went to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Um, Sorry, I've been using your tender romantic opportunity. My tender romantic moment is an opportunity to cram nuts in my head. Oh man, what a good episode this is turning out to be. Coming up next. Oh god.
Oh, hey, man. my WinZip trial has expired. Great. Thank God. Are you there or are you just gone? You're back. You're back. You were here the whole time. I just saw you eating peanuts in very fast motion. This episode's going so well. I know. It's... Oh, man. Okay. I don't know if you heard any of that, Paul. Hello. Yes? I'm here. Okay. So... Can you hear me? Oh. You're on a crazy delay, and I missed everything you said, and then it spoke really fast. Let me... Can I just try calling you? I'm gonna try calling you. Okay. Alright, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Alright, so... What? That's right, Skype has crashed so poorly you can't even see me. Oh, man. Are you there? I'm here. Are you there? Technology tonight, man. It's terrible. The content itself is good. It's just we're running into every technical problem we've ever run into. I mean, everything went wrong. 